And so as one's religion might wear a certain clothing to mark them out, Christians should not be concerned about that so much as we are marked by a unique, quantifiable, and identifiable love for one another. I'm Kyle Grant, and I'm the lead pastor at Grace Bible Church. You know, biblical preaching is one of the highest priorities of our ministry, and I'm so thankful that you've chosen to listen. If you have any questions about our ministry or would like to know more about Christ, feel free to connect with us at www.gracebibleelkhart.com. Thank you again for spending these moments with us, and I pray that God transforms you by His grace through the Bible. We are, as you know, in the upper room. This is a significant, one of the most significant individual units. And I say individual units, don't understand as individual chapters, individual units. This is the last address of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to die. This is the most extensive address of Jesus with his disciples before he goes to die. As you think about this passage, I hope you keep in mind where we were last week. Remember, we are, this is right after Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. One of them leaves. We'll talk about that again this morning. Judas leaves. I hope you remember the picture of gospel cleansing that we see from Jesus in washing the disciples' feet. And then Jesus is going to address those who are his very specifically. When I say those who are his, I mean his disciples. And he's going to do it after Judas leaves. You'll see that. But as you think about our message this morning, we're going to be reminded of one of the things that, when I say unique, I mean it truly. Unique is, I don't know if you know this about the word unique, but it's not supposed to be a comparative. It's already in the superlative sense. Unique is a word that we describe, we use to describe something that truly is one of a kind, okay? And Jesus gives the unique Mark, the one of a kind, different than any other kind of mark or evidence or example of a true disciple in this passage, of a true Christian in this passage. Maybe when you think about various religions, one of the things religions have done since, since religion was established was, was take on a form of of clothing or a unique apparel, a kind of apparel that marked them as a certain religion or as a certain kind of follower. They've, religion has done this, like I say, since religion was founded. Maybe think about Orthodox Judaism. To this day, looks the way they trim their beards, the, the yarmulke, where they wear the yarmulke. There's, all, there's specific, very specific principles for why they wear the, what they wear. Maybe you can think of the Sikh religion and they have that unique turban that is, is folded a certain way that they wear around their head. If you think about monk philosophy or when uh, monks first became to be, it came, became a thing back in the, well, really back in the, the 1100s was, was when monks really started to become popular. This idea that we, we go up in a building and we seclude ourselves from everyone else and they, they wore a certain kind of clothing because they, they wanted a certain kind of way of life. It was drab. It was brown. They would often cut their hair in weird ways so that it required little or no attention. 
it would surprise you one day if I showed up with the, the little monk ring around my head. I don't think I could pull that off. And my wife might leave me for a time so as to not be seen with me. Puritans, even within the foundation of our own conservative Christianity in America, Puritans back in the 16th and 1700s wore black and white attire to set them apart from Catholicism so that they wouldn't look like the, the flashy clothing of, of Catholicism, which is why you often see them in those uptight black and white suits or black suit white. You never saw a Puritan wearing a white suit. <laughs> black suit, white shirt. Maybe think about Catholicism. We just mentioned Catholicism. You know, you, are you all familiar with the term the College of Cardinals? Okay, it's the advisors to the Pope. And they're the, they're the big wigs in Catholicism. You may, you may not know what they're called, but you've seen pictures of them. They're the ones that wear that beautiful, bright red, silky getup. You know what I'm talking about? And they have that bright red, silky hat. They are not called the College of Cardinals because they're red. All right? It's because of the function that they fulfill. Uh, if you want to know why they wear red, it's because in, in Catholicism, red is the, the, the color of blood, which they symbolize as martyrdom. And so the idea is you should be the first to martyr before the Pope. We don't really have Christian garb today unless you're Southern Baptist and you have to wear a tie, right? Every good Southern Baptist has to wear a tie. But we don't really have Christian garb, clothing, apparel today. I mean, look around today. We're, we're dressed diversely. And that's because we understand, even fundamentally, what Jesus teaches about Christianity is that we should be primarily concerned with our, what's inside. The heart. And what's inside will affect the externals. And so while some religions, and I, I'm not over, I don't want to oversimplify. Obviously, they're concerned about faith and their belief and, and, and their practice as well. But they've chosen certain clothing to mark them out. There's a certain mark that Christians should have that distinguishes us, that makes us unique from any other belief system, any other philosophy, any other lifestyle. And it's what our heart looks like. And specifically, it's what our hearts for one another looks like. This is, a, this is a fascinating, amazing transitional passage. We've talked about a few transitional passages where Jesus introduces something or reinterprets something or redefines something. New covenant ideas. We looked at that back when we talked about the Passover in this passage, Jesus is introducing the new idea of what it means to love. And he's going to use the phrase new commandment. And so as one's religion might wear a certain clothing to mark them out, Christians should not be concerned about that so much as we are marked by a unique, quantifiable, and identifiable love for one another. And this is what Jesus is going to teach us in this passage. 
I want to submit to you this main idea from our text, which we'll read in just a moment, that true disciples of Christ truly love Christ and truly love like Christ. True disciples of Christ truly love Christ and love truly like Christ. Let's read our passage, then we'll pray. John chapter 13, starting at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and at and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will, I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after that, he had taken the morsel. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So I want to set the scene for you here a little bit. They, don't, they didn't dine in this time like, like we do today, and I'm sure you're aware of that. But if you can imagine with me the scene, I'll, I'll do my best to set it for you. They're all together. So there's the 12 until a certain point in the passage that you notice, and Jesus. So there's the 12 until a certain point, and Jesus. And then, as you know, one of them leaves. Judas leaves to, to go do what he's going to do. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But tables at this time, so first century, the way that they ate was that the table was only, was really not even a foot off the ground. It was very low to the, low to the ground, and, and they would all lay around the table. They would recline on their side and lay on their elbow. Okay? And so they, they would circle the table, and essentially they would be Head to foot, all laying around the table. Personal space wasn't as important to them as it is to us today, right? And so that's the scene. The food's out on the table, and, and they're preparing to dine. They're preparing to eat. And we're going to talk about, obviously, the significance of the table in the coming weeks. You already have a little bit. 
But that's the scene that we have. They're getting ready to eat, but something has to happen before they get ready to eat, before the actual eating and the celebration of the feast takes place. And that something that has to happen is someone has to leave. And that's important. So the first thing I want to show you in this passage is that we have a betrayer working for the devil. A betrayer working for the devil. Verse 21, after saying these things, after saying these things, he was giving them an example that they should follow in serving one another. Remember last week, they should ser- in serving one another. If you, if you believe in me, you'll believe in the one who sent me. Blessed are you if you receive these things. After saying these things, that is, you should follow Jesus, be a servant, and you should believe in Jesus, and you'll receive the salvation provided through Jesus Christ. Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Now, we've seen this phrase twice in the book, once in chapter 11 and once in chapter 12. In chapter 11, Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that means Jesus is coming to terms with the reality that the, the week of the cross is about to start. The full weight of what's about to take place hits Jesus for the first time, and he's not for the first time, but, but realized and becomes reality as the, as the Passion Week begins. And so he's deeply moved in his spirit because the cross, the wrath of God falling on Jesus, was enough to move Jesus in his soul. And ultimately, we know that ultimate pain for him is because he would feel separation from the Father that he loves. We saw it a second time. Remember the second time in chapter 12 when someone dies and he comes to bring it back to life. So he, and he sees the scene. He sees everyone weeping. He sees everyone. He remember there's people wailing because of the death of a loved one. Jesus sees it and he's moved to compassion. He feels their pain for them. And now we see the phrase again, he's moved in his soul. He's troubled in his spirit because specifically, I believe, of two things, the betrayal, and once again, the magnitude of the cross is weighing down the spirit of Jesus. Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This word testify actually has the idea of prophecy that was made. He predicted, one of you will betray me. And he's already talked about this betrayal. Remember, we talked last week. He keeps saying, one of you aren't going to be here. One of you aren't going to be here. One of you will not follow. But the disciples haven't picked up on it yet. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, now we presume that to be John. John often refers to himself this way. John had a close relationship with Jesus Christ, even more so than the other disciples, apparently. He's sitting closest to Jesus. So when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, Peter wants, I mean, they all want to know who it is, but of course it's Peter who speaks for the group. Hey, you should ask him who it is. We want to know who's going to betray. And I think, I think there's some curiosity. It's not just nosiness. Everyone wants to make sure it's not them. Everyone, makes, 
okay, he said this is going to happen. They understood this as a prediction Jesus made. He's like, all right, it's not going to be me. And Peter even says it's not going to be me later. At least not in the same way. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus. Now, again, remember, this is so easy for him because he doesn't have to lean over on the table. He doesn't have to cross over the table. He's laying right next to him. So literally all John has to do is just lean back and ask the question. Again, I just, in today's society, I can't imagine 12 men sitting around head to foot, just like laying on each other's chest. It's an odd scene for us today, but that was normal then, all right? And so John leans back, and and how we should understand the passage is Jesus answers John and no one else hears him. Sometimes people get to this passage and we go, well, why didn't they pay attention? He said it would be the one who dipped the cup. I don't think they heard him. I think only John heard him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, what happened? Satan, what's the word that is used? Entered him possessed him, took him over. Why? Because God's primary enemy, the son of God's primary enemy is not Judas. Judas is a pawn. But listen, this enacting of Judas' betrayal if you note the ultimate motive is that Satan possessed him, but this possession does not take place outside of the will of God. Because remember what was said in last week's passage. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. So why ultimately just Judas the betrayer betray Jesus? Because God said it would happen. And God keeps his word. And so I like to imagine, and this is just preacher imagination, all right? I like to imagine Satan thinks that he's getting the upper hand here. We got Judas. Judas is going to betray Jesus. Here we go. The, the, the plan is set in motion. But this was God's plan all along. God just uses Satan. So Judas is Satan's pawn, and Satan is God's. Nothing happens outside the will of God. Nothing. And no enemy of God gets the upper hand on God. Certainly not Satan. God uses Satan to accomplish his word. And what God has said, he will fulfill. Satan never has the upper hand on God, even when things seem most dark. Now look, What happens? Judas is gone. Judas leaves. He gets a taste, he dips the bread, gets the taste, leaves. And now Jesus addresses the disciples. Why does Jesus wait until Judas leaves? Because he's not a true disciple. What Jesus is about to say, what Jesus is about to teach, is reserved for those who are truly his. 
And so this transition marks the point in the passage where things change. Judas leaves the scene and now marks the, the, the clear and kind of formal, uh, obvious initiation or beginning of what we call the upper room discourse or this message, this teaching that takes place in the upper room. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to be there or for Judas to be there, excuse me. It makes sense for Jesus to be there. This is the clear beginning. It actually parallels with the conclusion in chapter 16. And so we know this is where the message in the upper room begins. And the audience is very contained. It's now the 11 and Jesus. Jesus is addressing those who are truly his. Because Jesus is about to teach a standard and system of following him and helping other people follow him as well. So Judas shouldn't really be there. So let's look at that new system and standard together. So first of all, we have a betrayer for the devil. Secondly, I want you to see the basis of true discipleship. The basis of true discipleship. Verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said to him, now is the Son of Man glorified. Jesus said this again back in 11, when, when remember the Passion Week would begin. Now the upper room begins, and so he, he reminds them of this. The Son of Man is glorified. And do you remember how the Son of Man is glorified in the book of John? We're supposed to understand the glorification of Jesus as the death of Jesus. Jesus will be glorified when he is lifted up. And he said this to tell them in what manner he would die. He would be lifted up, which they understood as lifted up on the cross. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus has said this to the Jewish listeners, Jewish followers, not his true disciples, those who are just following around and listening. And he said it twice. He said it in chapter 7. He said it in chapter 8. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And he said it in John chapter 8, verse 21. He said to them, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, this is not new the way that we understand it in that it's not been heard of before. It's not like maybe when you're talking to someone about a circumstance and they say, oh, I have new information, that maybe part of that circumstance you didn't know or details you didn't know. How do we know this isn't new? Even the 11 who are here now, who would not have been deeply educated, like the Pharisees would have been, would have understood the law. And if you understood the law, you, you understand you're supposed to love your neighbor. It's new because Jesus actually gives them a standard. It's not a new command. It's a new standard. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Now, as again, now again, remember I said Christ is drawing attention to his glory being connected with the reason for his departure. He keeps talking about leaving. They don't know why he's leaving. 
And when he says he's going to leave, his departure, the reason for his departure is his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He's going to leave because something is about to happen, which he'll get to later in the upper room, that they don't understand but will actually be better for them. And so the glory of the hour that he's referring to is the shame of the cross. The glory of the hour is the torture that he would experience. The shame, the glory of the hour is the suffering of the servant. The glory of the hour is the shedding of the son's blood. And in the glory of Christ's or in the in the glory that Christ would experience to the world and the world would see is ultimately accomplished and realized by him being killed. And so I want you to note before he gets into this command, before he talks about what we should be doing for one another, this discipleship, this love, this new commandment is rooted in a concern that God receive glory, that the, the Son receive glory, and that they receive it a certain way. Death of the Son. But remember I said he sets up a new basis of discipleship and so it's good to talk about the ba that basis now as Jesus mentions it. And the, I want to give you three observations about it. First of all, Christian discipleship is founded in the death of Christ for the glory of God. Christian discipleship is founded in the death of Christ for the glory of God. Now, discipleship is a buzzword in churches and it, it, honestly, it should be. It should be. When we talk about discipleship, some churches, they're, they're really concerned with discipleship because it means it's, it's about relationships, it's about growth, it's about connection with people, it's about impact in the community. And it is all of those things. Don't misunderstand me. But fundamentally, discipleship exists because Jesus died. Discipleship functions because God is worth glory. Discipleship is the relational system whereby God's people spread and multiply His glory in the lives of other people. And so sometimes we reduce, we reduce discipleship down to just the relational aspect. It's just about me connecting with you and you connecting with me and you connecting with so-and-so in the church and then us going out and evangelizing. If that's what we think about discipleship, we don't love Jesus. Did you hear me? Our first concern with discipleship is how can we spread the glory of the Son of God? That's the first one. And relationships are the way that we do that. Just the method. Just a means by which we accomplish the purpose. But we flipped it Discipleship's all about relationships. No. Relationships are the way that we fulfill the purpose. And the purpose is to multiply the glory of God in the lives of his people. So sometimes when we think about discipleship, it's like, well, who are you mentoring? And that's good. That's a good question to ask. Who are you connecting with? That's good. It's a good question to ask. 
who you're having lunch with, that's good. That's a good question to ask. But what about the next question? Are you helping one another glorify God? Are you focusing on the glory of the Son together? Are you cherishing the gospel together? If we reduce discipleship down to just a church growth structure, we have massively missed the mark, and we've revealed a massive lack of love for spreading the fame of God. Christian discipleship is founded in the death of Christ for the glory of God. Secondly, Christian discipleship is standardized by the love of Christ for the people of God. Remember, we, we said this is not a new, di, new commandment. It's a new standard. This, the way that this is new is he now says, you should love how? As I have loved you. You see, that's an impossible standard. Okay, try it anyway. Seriously, it's that simple. You say, well, I can't love people like Jesus does. Actually, you can. Not perfectly, but this is what's amazing about the gospel. This is what's amazing about Christianity. Do you know who I was concerned about before I got saved? Primarily, me. Primarily, I was concerned about myself, and so were you. I'm not trying to offend you, but before you have committed your life, before you, before you realized that you were a sinner and you confessed your sin and believed, our hearts were deceitful and desperate looking above all things. And Jesus says, or Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that we were saved so that we would no longer live for ourselves, implying that before you were saved, that's all you did, was live for yourself. So that's what we did. We lived for ourselves. Now Jesus rescues us, not just from our sin, but from false definitions of self and from false definitions of of, of love and kindness, and now what I do is my mode of operation is how can I serve others? How can I love others? I'm no longer just concerned for myself. I'm actually concerned not even just for my family, but for my brothers and sisters. And my heart hurts when they hurt, and I feel their needs with them, and I feel their pain with them. Because when Jesus saves you, he makes you like him. And that includes the love in your relationships. Which actually means when I'm living selfishly, I am living unnaturally as a Christian. Did you hear that? When I am living selfishly, that means I am living, what is, living in a way that is unnatural for true disciples because we have been rescued from natural selfish living. So thirdly, Christian discipleship is validated by the love of Christ among the people of God. Christian discipleship is validated by the love of Christ among the people of God. Look with me at verse 35. Uh, verse 35, there we go. By, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. It's validated. So, remember what we said earlier about what does a Christian look like? They look like love. Doesn't matter what they wear. I mean, be appropriate. But it matters what's in the heart. 
and it matters what their relationships look like. The unique distinguishing characteristic of those who are truly in Christ is that they love. And specifically, the scope is who? One another. And so I want to push back on one more Christian misunderstanding, all right? And here's what I don't want you to think I'm saying. I am not saying we shouldn't love the lost. We just had an event Friday night because we love the lost and we want to show them kindness. We do love the lost. But he does, Jesus does not say Christians are known for their love for the world and the lost people in it. He doesn't say that. He, we should, because to imitate the love of Jesus is to love people who don't have the gospel. But he doesn't say true Christians are known by their love for evangelism. He says true Christians are known by their love for brothers and sisters. They love one another a certain way. They treat one another a certain way. They care for one another a certain way. Now, I don't want to get all nerdy on you. But even in church history, we see an example of this. In the first century, the Romans oppressed the Jews, but they actually had a respect for them. Do you know why? Because they fought back. Jews fought, rebelled against the Romans. When you study first century wars between Rome and Israel, there's some gut-wrenching stuff. But Romans thought Christians, who claimed to be Christians, were weird. And they oppressed them more. Do you know why? Because they were pacifists. In fact, the, the, the stipulation about Christians is that they treated people like humans. There wasn't this superiority, authority, we have to throw everybody and get to the top. People noticed because they lived a certain way and they treated people a certain way. This is noticeable and quantifiable immediately following the explosion of the church in Acts chapter 2. True Christians, living like true Christians should, will be noticed. And can, can you imagine, can you imagine Someone coming in here, I just want you to imagine with me, and these are the kind of things that I imagine. So, someone coming in here and visiting for a little while. Let's just say their name is, let's just say his name is Steve. It's not a real person. I mean, Steve, there might be a real Steve, but the person I'm thinking is not a real person. Just imagine with me. Steve comes to our church for weeks. Visits. Pops in and out, says hello to people. And then Steve shows up in my office says, I want Jesus Christ to take away my sins. And I want to know what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and I want to be saved. Wouldn't that be awesome? And I asked Steve, okay, so what, what brought this on? Where's this coming from? 
and I know, in the Holy Spirit, right? But what brought this on? And he says, I just came to church here, and I noticed the way you treat each other. Just been coming, and I noticed how you talk to one another. I was curious, and I want what you have. Listen, that shouldn't be a fantasy. Those stories are attainable, and we should be praying for them. And we should be doing our part to evidence the love of Jesus so deeply in the lives of one another that when people bump into it, they're like, man, I, I got to find out more about this. Christian discipleship is validated by the love of Christ among the people of God. And then we're actually given a negative example. Here's what this love doesn't look like. So we have one betrayer in the passage. We have a new commandment. Then we have a denier. We have this teaching about the discipleship, about new, this new structure and order of discipleship and what it means to truly love. That love for one another is rooted in our love for Jesus. If we don't follow Jesus, we're not going to care for one another as we should. And then we're giving a ne- given a negative example. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Remember, the, I, 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 just, I know the disciples get a, a lot of flack, but Jesus just introduces to them this incredible idea This new system is being set up and you'll all care for one another deeply and and it's gonna be, it's gonna shine to the world and and Peter's like, okay, where did you say you were going? Let's, Let's go back to that leaving thing. Still confused on that. Jesus answered him and said, where are you going? I cannot, where I am going, you cannot follow. This sounds so different than what Jesus said earlier in the passage after he washed feet. He says, Follow me in this. Follow me in service, but you can't follow me in person because I'm going somewhere you can't go. Spoiler alert, he will also say to them, but I'm going to send somebody else to you. You're not going to be alone. Okay, we'll get there. And then we have a brash denier. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, in defense to Peter, that is eventually true. Sometimes we forget that. Like, let's give, let's give Peter the full spectrum. That did eventually happen, but sometimes we park on the bad stuff. And I love Jesus' response. Questioned him. Will you? Will you? And it pairs so beautifully with what Jesus will do with Peter later, right before he's about to leave. Do you love me? And then Jesus makes a second prediction. The first prediction is that a betrayer will go out. The second prediction is, you will deny me. Soon, three times. And what are we supposed to learn from Peter? He didn't get the system. Because you cannot love the people of Christ 
without fully, completely loving the person of Christ. And if you will deny the Son, you will deny His people. And if you will, if you will be loyal one day and disloyal the next, this is not the new system. This is not the new standard. You have to love Jesus completely before you evidence this kind of true discipleship love for one another. Now, now Peter's still here. Peter won't leave like Judas. Judas was the betrayer. Peter's just the denier. Isn't that amazing? Jesus still dies for him. And Jesus still loves him. And he will still go on to change the world for Jesus. And that means... Jesus has plans for people who mess up. Aren't you glad about that? I am. Because that's my wife. I mess up all the time. But let us pray as the people of God that our love for Jesus is unwavering because we, we have to truly love Jesus before we love truly like Jesus. And when that love for Jesus un is unwavering, we will instinctively love like Jesus and show the world, show Elkhart, show your neighbors, show your friends, show your family how amazing it is to be a disciple of Jesus because of your relationship with him and your relationship with other disciples.